0: I want to talk today about the contrast between myths that are widely believed by the public at large and what I regard as a reality which typically contradicts those myths. Banks and others were such as that they were best capable of protecting their own shareholders. I have a follow up question, which is if economy is a science, why isn't there just one right answer? Capitalism, God's way of determining who is smart and who is poor. I most of you still don't really know what happened. Yeah, you got a sound by repeat so you don't sound dumb, but come on. Oh! Oh, how about that? All of a sudden, a show about economic development doesn't seem like the worst thing you could be watching, does it? To save an economist put on this planet to make astrologers look good. stupid it is the economy stupid hey there everyone i'm Dave Yost, and welcome to okay let me tell you why you're wrong we're back this week with our series where we dissect a chapter of adam smith's the wealth of nations i've gotten some really great feedback based on our last wealth of nations episode so i'm left to assume that either i'm doing a pretty good job explaining adam smith or you are all horrible masochists. Either way, let's jump right into it. This week we will be looking at Book 1, Chapter 2 of The Principle Which Gives Occasion to the Division of Labor. I know, another really catchy title. Here, Smith starts right out with the, the first sentence of the chapter being one that, that I think warrants some unpacking. Uh, it reads The division of labor, from which so many advantages are derived, is not originally the effect of any human wisdom, which foresees and intends that general opulence to which it uh, gives occasion. It is the n- necessary, though very slow and gradual, consequence of a certain propensity in human nature, which has in view no such extensive utility. The propensity to truck, barter, and exchange one thing for another. So, rhetoric side, what does this mean? Well, what Smith is saying here is that the division of labor, and and really the whole economic system based around it, is not something that anyone sat down and intentionally constructed, but rather... The result of a naturally occurring inclinations in human beings. I'd made a brief mention of this when we talked about the previous chapter and and promised that we'd wind up spending more time on it. And here we are. To me, this is a hugely important point, because it supposes that the the system of exchange, not, not just bartering, but, but rather the system of exchanging labor for personal gain isn't a conscious construction, but rather, I guess, instinctive on our part. Now, many out there would credit Adam Smith with creating capitalism, and that's wrong on a number of levels. First, Capitalism, as defined as a, a system where the means of production are privately owned, existed long before Adam Smith. In, in our modern reckoning, capitalism, in, in some small-scale form or another, has existed since the end of feudalism. Smith would, through the wealth of nations, challenge certain inaccurate ideas about capitalism, but he certainly didn't invent it. He couldn't have. And... And that's really the point Smith is making here, that and, and let's shift away from the term capitalism for now because it's really not accurate, but that the idea of markets and the power of markets doesn't come from a philosophy or the idea of any great thinker. Rather, markets spring up naturally out of our own inclinations as human beings. You could take a hundred... Philosophers or a or hundred laborers in a vacuum and left entirely to their own devices, both groups would still come up with a system of exchange. They would still create markets. They would still eventually create a division of labor. That's a huge idea. Basically, we're hardwired to create a system where we're all engaging in this kind of implied agreement that rather than each man being ruggedly self-reliant, rather than each person scraping by to do everything necessary for survival on their own, we're all going to cooperate, at least within the scope of our own self-interest, to further the benefits to the whole. That may not have been hugely controversial back in his day, but I think that today, a lot of the people out there who claim to want to adhere to the tenets of Adam Smith would be shocked by this idea. Here in the U.S., we have a great many people who, who like to foster what what I call the myth of the individual. The idea that it's somehow noble and right for one to be entirely self-reliant it's born out of taking a lot of old westerns' as documentary filmmaking rather than the simple entertainment that they were. The myth of the individual supposes that the only real way to live one's life is away from the weak and coddled masses, relying only on one's own labor to survive. This usually involves a cabin in the woods and a lot of clothes made out of pelts. Where this gets funny is that the same people who pine after this kind of simpler, better life will often cite the ideas of Adam Smith as a kind of philosophical bedrock for their fantasy. I'm sure you all have at least one friend like this. I'm sure they wind up peppering your your news feed, your Facebook feed, with quotes from Ron Paul, Friedrich Nietzsche, and often Adam Smith. Now, in some cases, those people are simply taking a political philosophy and mm, wrapping it in a myth, in a way that sounds good, but mm, really just takes it to a kind of nonsensical extreme. But as it relates to Smith, what they're doing is twisting it around to be the exact, exact opposite of what he said. Smith not only saw human beings as entirely independent, interdependent on one another but also that this condition wasn't being forced on us by governments or outside entities but rather the natural state of human nature and human existence even that rugged individualist in, in the myth of the individual starts to break down under the scrutiny that Smith outlined in the previous chapter sure He goes out from his cabin to chop wood for his fireplace. But where'd he get the axe to chop the wood with? Did he mine the ore and and forge the axe head? No. He bought it from somebody else who did. Our individual then tends to his fields by plowing them. But did he make the plow? or beat the rope that connects it to his team of oxen or invent the idea of plows and rope and animal husbandry no someone else did that and he's simply using their, the, the product of their labor or, the, or their ideas he's reliant on the labor of others and they are reliant on his labor and this is the most natural thing in the world at least according to Smith. Now, as I've said, this wouldn't have been shocking, it wouldn't have been that shocking of an idea back in Smith's day, but that was because he lived at the tail end of what is known as the Age of Enlightenment. And having been alive at that time, his ideas fit pretty neatly with with a lot of the prevailing ideas of the time. So much of Smith is clearly influenced by the general trend in thinking that was going on then. And with that, I thought we'd take our first major tangent to the episode, and I'd provide a bit of background on the general philosophies that no doubt influenced Smith in his writings of The Wealth of Nations. As I've said, Smith lived and and wrote during the waning years of the Age of Enlightenment. The, the, The Age of Enlightenment was a period generally thought of as lasting through most of the 18th century, and saw amazing accomplishments in art, science, and philosophy. This was the age of Mozart and Descartes, Hume and Newton, Bach and Kant, Thomas Paine, Benjamin Franklin, Voltaire, and, well, Adam Smith. It was a time where, even though it spanned a century, it seemed like all aspects of life were speeding up, and that there were new and shocking discoveries being made every day. The The technology that scientists were inventing fueled the Industrial Revolution, and that... ...fueled the rise of wealth for an emerging middle class who spent their newly earned income on music and theater and art. In a lot of ways, the sense of dazed amazement at at how rapidly things were advancing and improving, or, to be fair, in some cases, not improving, uh, is similar to what we see today, with the rapid pace of technology change. During this time, there was a movement that was that was cropping up in the field of philosophy. Now, it can trace its origins back to Greek and Roman philosophy, but around this time, it, it began to be popularized. Uh, the, the The first Enlightenment era philosopher to address this is usually credited as as Hugo Grotius, but but the guy who's typically. Uh, cited as launching the movement, was Thomas Hobbes in his book Leviathan. In Leviathan, Hobbes talks about governments. uh, Governments of all kinds. Being a result of man's desire to avoid living in what he coined the state of nature. Uh, This would be a world without any kind of society, where the strong would prey on the weak, and every man, woman, and child would truly be on their own. Obviously, this was a less than desirable situation. Hobbes described life in the state of nature as uh, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. And it would be. Isolated, with no laws to govern our behavior, life would become entirely about survival by any means necessary. Even the strongest couldn't be secure in their place, because all it would take is a stronger, cleverer, person to come by and supplant them, probably through force. Maybe it's reductionist and, and, and a bit unfair, but when my, uh, when my libertarian friends talk about their ideal world being one where we're all left to govern ourselves, I, I can't help but feel like what they're talking about is a bit too close to this kind of brutal dystopia for my tastes. Anyway, Hobbes states that, as a way to avoid this kind of world, we, as human beings, created society, a system of commonly agreed upon rules, not, not just those that are codified by laws, but, but more generally the agreement between all of us that we're going to live in a world where we willingly, if tacitly, submit to those laws. And this tacit agreement, according to Hobbes, is the basis of all government. There is no divine right of kings, but rather a government or a ruler derives their power from the consent of the governed. Our leaders have authority over us because we willingly submit to that authority. We do this at the sacrifice of our personal liberty... Because it allows us to live in a world with laws, and the enforcement of those laws, so that we don't have to be looking over our shoulder constantly, as we would in the state of nature. This is a pretty wild idea at the time. It flew in the face of of what had been the justification for governmental power in Europe for the past 600 years, being that the monarch had power and authority because God designated them to rule. Now, if you're saying, yeah, but how wild could that idea be? Well, so much so that in uh, 1666, the British Parliament cited the heretical ideas of Thomas Hobbes as having been the cause of the fire of London and held a vote on whether or not to throw him into the flames. This idea would later be refined uh, by uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau and given its name, Social Contract Theory. So, I mention all of this to set the stage for the kind of thinking that was taking hold among philosophers in the 1700s. A line of thinking that would inspire the founding fathers of the United States to declare independence and form a representative government in the same year that it influenced Adam Smith to see that the tacit agreement of the social contract didn't just apply to governance, but also to work through, wait for it, the division of labor. And this brings us back to the way Smith frames the division of labor as a naturally occurring phenomenon rooted in human nature, making an economy rooted in a market structure and almost, well, almost a biological imperative. For those on the far political extremes who demand a complete overhaul of our economic system, Smith would say that there's really only so far from the basic anchor idea of, of our economy that we can ever really stray so that all the, the past 15 minutes uh, covers uh, the first two sentences of the chapter uh, but I do think those were some rabbit holes worth going down moving along uh, Smith does take note that uh, people are unique in nature as the only animals that exhibit this natural tendency to to barter to, and trade animals he, he he cites greyhounds uh may work in cooperation to to say chase down a rabbit but that kind of pack behavior isn't the same as making an agreement of exchange but smith also notes that well Mankind is cooperative. It's not out of benevolence. We all rely on the work and assistance of others, but none of us are doing it out of charity. Instead, we enter into bargains of self interest. He states It's not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard for their own self interest. Yeah, sorry, sorry with the Smith quotes. I mean, to be truly accurate, I, I should be doing them in a thick Scottish accent, but I'm not really great at that accent, so I'm just going to do it in my kind of you know haughty professor voice. Now, so this quote, this is one of those quotes that gets memed a lot uh, by people trying to justify why they shouldn't have to care about their fellow man. But I think it's important to note that self-interest and selfishness are two different things. And again, that's not me saying that. That's Smith. He mentions that in in striking these bargains, the goal is for a man to, and and again, quote, insert their self-love in his favor and show them that it is for their own advantage to do for him what he requires of them. It's about finding that point of cooperation where each person benefits others by benefiting themselves. Whatever your job is, the output of it in some way benefits the rest of society. But you're not about to do that job without any kind of compensation. Well, unless you're a podcaster. But that's something else entirely. Requiring that compensation is a product of self-interest, but not greed. As we go through the wealth of nations, we'll have more opportunities to hit on the nature of self-interest and and how we define self-interest more deeply. But for now, it's just important to know that, according to Smith, it is a main driver of the market system. Smith also notes that while the division of labor was was having some striking effects on the economy and society of his time uh, you know as the end result of naturally occurring human inclinations it was far from a new concept here he uses the example of of early man in a tribal society where <clears throat> quote a particular person makes bows and arrows for example with more readiness and dexterity than any other. He frequently exchanges them for cattle or for venison with his companions, and he finds at last that he can, in this manner, get more cattle and venison than if he himself went to the field to catch them. And here Smith is starting to broach the idea of specialization. Again, there will be later chapters that delve into this in more detail so I'll hold off on a lengthier discussion of it for now in the context that we're talking about it today specialization is a product of the division of labor just as the division of labor allows for greater focus on your one job that then gives way to you becoming better at it or to quote Smith encourages every man to apply himself to a particular occupation and to cultivate and bring to perfection whatever talent or genius he may possess for that particular species of business. With this established, Smith then decides that, true to the general consensus of Enlightenment-era thinking, we are all created essentially equal. So, this phenomenon of specialization isn't based on some kind of inherent talents in, in only certain people, but rather a product of practice. Again, to quote him directly, the difference between the most dissimilar characters, between a philosopher and a common street porter, for example, seems to arise not so much from nature as from habit, custom, education. I will say, I, I do always find it funny that, um, at least uh, according to philosophers, and, and Smith is not alone on this, uh, the, the, the highest end of the spectrum of success seems to always be being a philosopher. But, whatever. So, Smith is saying that excellence in any field is really just a matter of habit. If you do something enough, whether it's something of your choosing or not, you will eventually become very good at it. Which sounds kind of familiar. I don't know if you remember, but back in 2008, Malcolm Gladwell made a big splash with his book Outliers, where he discussed his 10,000 hours theory. Basically being that if you want to master something, anything, a musical instrument, a skill, anything, you have to spend 10,000 hours working at it, and you eventually will. Well, Mr. Gladwell, you're the first in what I'm sure is going to be a, a long-running theme in these episodes, where I have to say, your idea is fine, but... Smith said it first. Smith also points out that, again, there, there's a distinct difference between human beings and, and the animal kingdom here. When it comes to animals, there is specialization within various species. But that kind of specialization is naturally occurring. Uh, among dogs, uh, some, like the, the mastiff, are strong. Some, like the greyhound, are fast. Spaniels are, at least according to Smith, shrewd. don't know how a spaniel is shrewd, but we'll go with it. Uh, and uh, shepherd dogs are docile. These are all examples of specialization, but they stem from biology rather than choice and, and practice. And, and, and most importantly, the specialties of each type of dog in no way serve to benefit the whole of dogs everywhere. In this kind of thing, humans are unique. So that's book one, chapter two. Uh, it was a short one. Uh, but uh, th- there is one last tangent that I'd like to go on. Uh, from, from the quotes and examples that I've been using in this, and, and in the episode uh, about the previous chapter, you may have noticed that Smith is a really big fan of illustrating his points using parables. He talks about the coat of a theoretical labor. He talks about the members of a theoretical tribe making bows and arrows. I mention this because it's one of the things that Smith's critics often cite as being a major problem with his work. Uh, I came across an article by uh, Roland Babor. Uh, Boer, yeah, on uh, on a website called The Conversation from uh, April of 2015, titled The Myth That Holds Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations Together. In it, Boer, referring to the tribal society that Smith mentioned in this chapter, asks, Where is this mythical village or tribe? Does it exist among North American Indians? Asian pastoral nomads, African tribes, Pacific Islanders, Greenlandic hunters, Australian Aborigines, or a small Scottish town of shopkeepers? Is it limited to the past, or does it appear in some remote place today? Often, in the same myth, it moves from one place to another, producing an ethnic other as it does so. But the similar fact is that this tribe or village never existed. No such community has ever been found, nor will it be. For it is the product of Smith's imagination. Sorry, I couldn't resist using that voice. Uh, Now, by pointing this out, Bord does... he, He seems to really feel like he has completely debunked Smith. And thus... I guess, undermined the entire foundations of modern economics? And the walls came tumbling down. Except they didn't. Bohr is full of it. First of all, he's holding Smith to a level of empirical evidence that wasn't in any way possible or practical back in 1776. Big data did not exist. Uh, Apparently, Smith should have only ever used... Ultra-specific examples, which I guarantee you, if he had, Bohr would then attack him for being too specific. Uh, You know, your your examples are too specific, you can't derive any broader truth from it. And this is because Bohr is engaged in in two kinds of very disingenuous criticism. First, he's committing a uh, kind of a derivation of the logical fallacy called Ugh, I hope that's how you pronounce that. My Latin is terrible. Uh, in Tukoki, or in this version of it, he's basically saying that because this tribe can't be cited specifically by Smith as, as, as having existed, then the no conclusions that Smith draws from his parable can have any kind of truth to them. Yes, Smith is drawing from his imagination. But he's not making up this tribe out of whole cloth. His bows and arrows parable is based on a a broader working knowledge that Smith had of early anthropology, likely gained by exposure to experts in that field among his other fellows at Oxford. It may not be based on a specific tribe, but I think we can all agree that the contents of the parable make sense as do the conclusions drawn from it. After all, that's what a parable is. And this is what Smith was going for. It may not seem like it to, to a modern reader, but Smith was writing The Wealth of Nations intentionally in such a way where its ideas could be understood and absorbed by lay people. He wanted his ideas to be understood and spread, even outside the upper-crust academic community. In an effort to do this, he used these kinds of basic parables to relay his ideas. If he had diverged on on every point to cite exactly what examples he he was using, the book would have wound up being four times longer than it already is, and been completely impenetrable for the common reader. Secondly, Roland Bohr is is engaging in something that I seem to see more and more often in, in, in recent years, which is trying to make a splash and a name for himself by taking an outrageously contrarian position. I've seen this a lot with, with people writing new books on established history. And and, and I, I I kind of understand it. After all. There there are already so many books out there about Alexander the Great. So, how do you distinguish yourself, and and more importantly, move units? Well, you write a book called Alexander the Not-So-Great, where you depict him as a drunken buffoon, bumbling from one lucky break to another. Now, that's in no way an accurate depiction, but you'll sell some books based on the same kind of curiosity that causes people to slow down when passing traffic accidents. So we get these new books, where Alexander is a drunk, and Abraham Lincoln is gay, and Benjamin Franklin was a loyalist to the British monarchy, and Adam Smith is a moron. Breaking through the myth, to find the, the 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 truth, is a noble pursuit. But this kind of thing is beyond that. This kind of thing is cheap. This kind of thing is clickbait. So sorry, Roland. Smith ex- examples may be made up, but the nature of the market economy is still very real. In fact, you're proving it by specializing in making yourself and your readers feel smarter than they actually are by finger quotes, uh, by writing blistering takedowns and getting paid by the view to do it. That sounds like a market to me. Well, thanks again to all of you for listening. Uh, We'll be here uh, back here next week with another topic episode and then back the Wealth of Nations Book 1, Chapter 3 in two weeks. Feel free to join us on the OK Let Me Tell You Why You're Wrong Facebook group and uh, leave a comment or suggest a topic for a future episode. Uh, Or if you don't use Facebook, you can email uh, the show directly at OK Let Me Tell You Why You're Wrong at gmail.com. Again, that's all one word, no punctuation, no comma after OK, no apostrophe in your. As always, special thanks to George Sacco, who composed the unlicensed music that I'm now using in the intro and outro. If you like his stuff, check out his channel on YouTube. That's George with a J, and S-A-C-C-O. Be sure to take some time to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. And with that, I will see you next week. I've been Dave Yost, and this has been OK. Let me tell you why you're wrong.